Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To hearing from the Lord. All right, well, it's good to be here and, and to fill in for Pastor Sean this morning. Uh, it's, it's always a privilege for, for me to, to share from the Word of God with, with everyone here. I, I have to say, I just realized that when we were singing this morning, uh, I think today, and Julie will probably tell me I'm wrong, because I probably am, but today may be the, the, our, our fifth year today, I think is the, officially our fifth year here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, so that means that you guys have a lot of patience um, to put up with me for five years. So thank you. Um, it is a privilege to, to serve as, as your pastor here. Well, today's text is going to be in Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses 97 through 104. And as you're turning there, I, I want to remind you of, of, a, of a familiar scene in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian is trying to be rid of his burden, and he's, and he's straying from the path at this time, and he's heading towards Mount Sinai, because he was told if he, if he goes towards Mount Sinai, he might be able to re, be relieved of his burden. So on his way, way to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai continues to, to grow and grow and get taller and co- taller. There's, there's thunders, there's lightnings, there's earthquakes, and the more that he climbs, the more impossible he finds Mount Sinai to be. And so a Christian gets depressed, he gets frustrated, and he can't get off this mountain. But then Evangelist comes, and he rescues him, and then he puts him back on the path. What John Bunyan was trying to, to demonstrate with that scene is the impossibility of keeping the law. Like, the, the farther along we go in, in trying to keep the law, the more that it begins to appear to, to tower over us. However, it is one of those perplexing issues that we have as Christians is what in the world do we do with the, the law? Like a lot, of, a lot of our Bible has a lot of commands, a lot of instructions, a lot of things that, that we are supposed to be doing. So how do, what role does that, that play in our life? Do we become like Christian? Do we become depressed and, and, and it just towers over us? Or do we, be, you know, we follow the law to the point where we get legalistic? So what in the world do we do with the law? You know, as Americans, we're kind of anti-authority. We, we don't really like this idea that an outside thing can come in and tell us how we're supposed to live. So, so how do we react to that? Well, first off, I, I want to just tell you, when I'm talking about the law today, I'm, I'm speaking of the law in the moral sense. There's a couple other ways that we could talk about the law, but today I'm, I'm focusing in particular on the, the moral sense of the law. So with that in mind, let's, let's read our text this morning in, in Psalm 119 starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. 
So the psalmist, he cries out and prays uh, in this passage, Oh, how I love your law. Now when, now, when I think of the law, that's not usually my reaction, isn't, oh man, I love this. Um, but that's what, that's what the psalmist is, ex- is proclaiming here, is just his, his love for the lost. Because he understood what God was, was doing with, with the law. And he delights himself in it because it keeps him from evil. It becomes sweet to him, sweeter than, than honey, he says. It's his meditation. And because of that, he, he hates every false way. So, Today, we're kind of asking the question, how and, and why can the psalmist say that? So we're going to kind of go through a journey through Scripture to kind of discover how it is that the, the psalmist can say, oh, how I love your law. And, and with that in mind, this is kind of the, the main point of today's passage, which is God's law restrains sin, exposes sin, and motivates the Christian to holiness. That's why the psalmist can say, oh, how I love your law. So we're going to kind of look at that using some, some different metaphors that have been, been used historically. Uh, John Calvin, back in Geneva, he taught the three uses of the law. And we're going to kind of explore those different uses. So uh, the first one that we're going to tackle to this morning is the law as the bridle, or a law as a bridle. Now, my, my wife is a horse person. She loves riding horses. And a bridle is a piece a very important piece of equipment when it comes to, to riding a horse. Now, without the bridle, you can't ever pull back the horse, and, and you have no, no brakes. So imagine, like, driving a, a, a car without brakes that has a mind of its own. Um, so without that, that bridle, that horse has a mind of its own. It's going to go take off somewhere that you don't want it to go, and you might be in for the ride of your life. So that's why you need that bridle, so you have that, that whoa. You know, I, I was also thinking, you know, maybe you're not a horse person, uh, but this I think everybody can relate to is at some point we all had to go through driver's ed and our driver's ed instruction at least mine growing up had what we called the chicken break so whenever we got driving too crazily that driving instructor would bam step step on that brake and basically you know scold us for doing something kind of stupid when we were driving so uh so whatever way you want to look at it the law the law has a, a restraining element to it. That's the, the law as, as the bridle. So Paul explains how this works in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. He says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." So, so what Paul is addressing here is, is the Gentiles here who have not received the law of Moses in the Old Testament. He's addressing like why these Gentiles seem to live moral lives. And so what he's saying here is in God's common grace and in our identity as being made in God's image, we have the moral law written in our consciences. And because of that, we, we know what is right and what is wrong, even if we didn't grow up studying the Bible because God has so imprinted that on the human psyche. So why, why do that? Well, 
you know, God does that, and and one of the reasons he does that is to restrain the evil in ourselves. So you and I, we're not as wicked as we could be. We could be far more wicked unless God would restrain that uh, with giving us this moral sense. So God's law then restrains our evil personally in our lives, but also in the culture in general. Now, we all know that we, that we fall short even of our own consciences. Like, many times we, we know what we're supposed to do, and we don't do it. And, and, but all the same, we, we're not as wicked as we could be because, because of God's uh, sovereignty and God's grace given, given to all of us so that it can kind of pull back that evil even within ourselves. But that restraint is also why God gives us the government and police. Uh, Romans 13, 1-4 says this, Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, not, would you have not fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So not only then does, does the moral law restrain our, our evil personally, but also evil in our culture. So we should thank God for the institution of the government. Now, normally when we think about the, the government, we kind of moan and groan, but we forget about all the good things that our, our government, our police force, that they do. For example, we can go into Walmart and expect them to honor our currency, right? So when we buy, buy goods there, we can expect them to honor that, not cheat us out of something that, that we're trying to buy when, when we're at a grocery store. Or many of us, we can walk down the sidewalk and have, have no fear that someone's going to drive by and do something stupid and start shooting at us or something like that. We can walk without fear because of the, the government. Why? Well, it's because God has given us the rule of law in the form of, of government and police. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, a, a founding father, once said this, If all men were angels, we would not need government. In other words, the reason God has given us government is we are not all angels. We need government to, to step in and to, and to restrain, to dial back that evil, to threaten us with punishment should we act wickedly, should we act in, in a manner that's destructive to our culture. So therefore, you and I, we need to, to thank God for giving us those institutions like the government, the police force, things like that. Our, our legislators, our community leaders, individuals who give us laws in our culture that help us restrain evil. Um, you know, when we groan and we, and we maybe complain a lot about our government, but I think it's good to kind of take a step back and to think about all the good that our government does that we just forget about. Because we just take it for granted that we can feel safe walking down the streets. However, when we, when we look carefully at the law, we know that we all fall, fall short. You know, Romans 2, that we read earlier, it, it hinted as that. But Romans, uh, Paul would also say this later in Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
And so what Paul is saying here is like, look, the law also serves as another purpose. It also serves in a different way, which is that the law works like a mirror. So another way the law, the, the law of God works, the moral law of God, is like a mirror. Um, you know, this, this morning, the middle school guys were giving me a hard time because I had some crazy hair that I didn't even think about. And they were telling me, uh, Andrew, you, you really need to go to the mirror and take care of that. And sure enough, I had some amazing bedhead going on that the middle school boys were ever so generous in helping me out to, to deal with my, my bedhead. But that's what we do with the mirrors. We, we get up, we look in the mirror, and we, we see our hair sticking crazy directions. You know, we maybe see some bags under our eyes. And, and we look at that mirror, and we see all our imperfections, and we see what needs work, and we, and we work on that so that we can be, you know, have a better public appearance. So the, so the law, then, it serves to show us our, our moral, moral reflection, to see how good it is that we are doing. So what the law does, when we, when we look at the law, it shows us our depravity. We see it staring back at us. We see our own sinfulness. When we look at the law, it, it's looking back at us. And we see where it is that we fall short of the law of God. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the law then uncovers and and exposes our own depravity. Sometimes we're blind to ourselves. We have blind spots that we don't even know are, are sinful. And so the word of God, it peels back those layers so that we can see ourselves for who we really are. Paul explains uh, in this a little more detail, Romans 7, 7 through 14, says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let's kind of trace Paul's point here in, in Romans. So Paul is arguing that there's nothing wrong with the, the law itself, but rather the, the knowledge that the law gives us of sin. So, for example, he picked coveting to kind of prove his point. He says, like, look, I didn't really know coveting was sinful until the law said, you shall not covet. And then I realized that when I covet, I am sinning. But not only did I, did I realize that when I covet, I, I am sinning, but it actually made me want to, to covet more because I wanted to, to break that, that rule because my human heart was working against me. So to, to give you an example of this, this is something I thought about. Like if I took a group of kids and I put them in a, uh, a hotel room and the first thing I told them is, don't jump on the bed and I leave the room, what am I going to come back five minutes later? What am I going to see? All the kids are going to be jumping on the bed. Why? Well, because I told them, do not jump on the bed. Now, maybe if I didn't say anything, they might not have 
done that, but, but the way that it works, as soon as I, I give that command, the rebellious human sinful heart says, you know what, I'm going to try to figure out how I could break that command. So that's what Paul is explaining here in Romans, that, that as soon as God gives a command, there's nothing wrong with the, the law that God gives, but the human heart begins to, to work against that law because in its rebellion. So the, the law, working as that, that mirror, it begins to expose and uncover and show us our own sinfulness, to show us our rebellion. So you may be sitting here today, and, and maybe you've thought of yourself kind of through, through, throughout your life, that you know, you know what, I'm a... I'm really a, a pretty good good person. You know, I haven't killed anybody. By the way, I always think it's interesting when, when you begin to share the gospel with somebody and, and they begin, it's like, you know, you know, I don't really need the gospel. It's not really all that important because I'm really a pretty good person. And usually they kind of add this right away. I haven't killed anybody. As if that's the only marker of what makes a good person is somebody who hasn't killed anybody. But the more that you go around and you share the gospel, the more that you see that. So what we're going to do, uh, this morning is to do a little bit of an experiment just to kind of show how, the, how this works, how the law operates like this. And we're going to run through the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And I'm just going to kind of ask some questions to kind of uncover and expose just how good of a person we really are. So the first command is this. No other gods com- are before me. Um, so is God our supreme source of delight? our joy, our comfort, who we go to for security. Now, Pastor Sean spent four weeks uncovering idolatry, and I think we can all say affirmatively, you know what, we've probably all broken that commandment, no other gods before me, because we have put out an idol that's greater than God. The second command is don't have any graven images. So are you worshiping God properly? So, or are you rather worshiping God for what he can get for you? You know, in other words, I'm going to worship God because if I do that, he's going to get me what I really want. So, so, so maybe, maybe that's where you're at. And the third commandment says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. So have, have, have you spoken of, of God correctly at all times? Or, or maybe, maybe it's your life. You know, because when you claim to be a Christian or you claim to be a follower of God, do you give people a reason to blaspheme God because of the way that you, you live? The fourth command is to keep the Sabbath day holy. So do you labor hard for six days and reserve one day to honor God with? Do you make gathering with God's people a priority? The fifth command is to honor your father and mother. So children, youth who are here, do you obey your parents perfectly? I know you guys don't, so don't lie. That would be breaking another commandment. Uh, for, for the adults, do you... Do you respect and honor those authorities that God, have, God has placed in your life, be it, be it a boss or an employer, or maybe it's your own parents? Are you able to, to still respect and honor your parents even in their age? The sixth commandment is do not murder. Now this goes beyond attempting to, to physically kill somebody, but have you attempted to kill somebody? Maybe in, in the words that you've spoken about that person through gossip, for example, or, or maybe it's the way that you've thought about somebody. Maybe you've tried to kill them, not figuratively, in your thoughts. Do not commit adultery. So for those of us who are married, are, are we faithful to our spouses in thought, in word, in deed, at all times? Are we faithful to our spouses? And, and maybe if you're, you're not married, are you reserving your sexual desires for that future spouse? You know, are you reserving the best of who you are sexually for, for your future spouse? Are you doing that? 
The Eighth Commandment says, do not steal. So have you ever stolen every, anything? You know, have you cheated on your taxes, for example? Have you stole, tried to steal from Uncle, Uncle Sam? Have you failed to tithe? You know, do you work hard on the clock at all times? Or do you just kind of slack off just to kind of get by because it's a, it's a paycheck? The Ninth Commandment is, do not bear false witness. Do you speak only the truth? Have you ever lied, in other words? How, how many of you guys have, have, have never lied? Oh, Doug? No. <laughs> so Doug's an honest man over there. Um, the Tenth Commandment says, do not covet. So have you, have you ever desired something that should only belong to somebody else? For example, like, like you've coveted somebody's wife. That's something that you would find in Exodus 20. Or, or his employees, or his place of employment, or his car, or his house, or something like that. Or do you just have an over-desire for material goods? You know, are you that person that has to have the newest electronic gadget, or your world will be destroyed, you know, if you don't get the newest gadget? You know, all this is to say is that the, the Ten Commandments, as an example of, of God's moral law, just expose us to our own sinfulness. So the Ten Commandments are, are like God's foundational bedrock laws that, that he gave to us. And, and when we're honest, and we begin to peel back the layers with ourselves, that we begin to realize that not only did we break like one commandment, we've probably broken all ten. So, so when God looks at you and I, and he gave us ten commandments to keep, is he going to see us as guilty or not guilty? So listen again to Paul. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul is uncovering here an intention of the law. It's meant to expose the sinfulness of sinners. It's, it's able to kind of peel back those layers so we can see ourselves for who we truly are in God's sight. So the law exposes just how far gone we really are. And how far short of the glory of God we are. This is why, you know, in Romans 6.23, God can say this, For the wages of sin is, is death. Meaning an eternal punishment for our sinfulness. And we, we can all know that, you know what, I, I deserve death because, because of my, my sinfulness. So Jesus, he says this in Matthew 5.18-19. I, I know I'm a little out of order slide, guys, so I apologize for that. It says this, For truly, I say to you, this is Jesus, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what hope then do we have if if our righteousness is to be fulfilled, right? Because we know, just kind of go through the Ten Commandments, just how far, far short that we are of even coming close to keeping God's commands. And Jesus says, like, look, even if you, you relax one of those commandments so that you can keep it, you're really kind of breaking the law. And he, and he kind of challenges his 
listeners at the time, look, your, your righteousness needs to exceed the, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, it doesn't strike, quite strike us like it would have struck Jesus' audience, but for, for his audience, the scribes and Pharisees, they were thought of like the best. You know, they were the, the really religious guys who really did keep the law, and Jesus is like, look, they're not even good enough. So if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to have a righteousness that goes beyond even the very best of humanity. So what hope does humanity have then? Well, our hope is in Jesus. You know, think about, go back to those Ten Commandments. Every point where you and I failed to keep the Ten Commandments, Jesus succeeded perfectly. Anytime that you and I broke a command in, in, the, in Scripture, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus kept both the, the heart and letter of the law. So he was perfectly righteous, obeying every jot, tittle, everything that you could think about with the commands and, and law of God, Jesus kept. So Jesus' perfect obedience then becomes good news for lawbreakers. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul here is explaining the beauty of the cross. So, so God took Jesus, who obeyed perfectly all the commands of, of God, his perfect righteousness, and is able to give it to us sinners. Now, how is he able to do that? Well, well on the cross, Jesus takes upon all of our, our sinfulness, past, present, and future, into himself. And, and conversely, when as soon as we have faith in Christ, we receive his perfect record of righteousness. So we receive his perfect obedience to the law. So any time you and I, I broke the law, God doesn't see where we broke it, but rather where, where Christ succeeded in keeping the law. So, so then, what does that mean for us Christians? Does that mean that we can just say, eh, whatever, we don't really need to pay attention to the law anymore because Jesus kept, kept it for us perfectly, so we don't need to bother uh, with, the, with God's law. Uh, consider the, the words of John in 1 John 3, 4, and 5. He says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has neither seen him or knows him. So John is pointing out here that that, that person who is in habitual sin is, is lawless. And Jesus, he came to do away with lawlessness. So a person in habitual sin who is not keeping the law, God's moral law, that person who keeps on sinning most likely is, is not, a, not a Christian. So if someone claims to be a, a Christian, claims to be following after, after Christ, and isn't trying to keep God's moral law, what John is saying here is that that person who kind of goes out of their way to break the law isn't really a Christian. So, so John is saying, look, the, the law is really important for us as Christians. So, so what role does it, does it play for us as believers then? Because it's not what gives us our justification right, because our, our justification comes by faith in Christ. So what in the world are we supposed to do with the law? Well, this is the, the third use of the law, which is the law as a, a training regimen. Now we're approaching January 1st, which is the time that everyone says, you know what, this is going to be the year I'm going to get in shape. I mean, that's, that's about everybody's attitude come January 1st. You know, I got to get rid of those holiday pounds. I need to get in shape. So where do I go? 
well, I, I go, go and look at a workout regimen, right? You know, because I, I want to diet right. I want to work out these certain muscles and, and work in a certain way so that I can, I can become a, a more fit individual and, and lose some weight. And so the law works as, as a lot like that. It's, it's something that God gives to us to teach us, to in, instruct us on what it means to live the Christian life. It shows us on what it means to live a healthy, gospel-shaped life. Now, we can't keep the program perfectly. How many of us have ever kept the exercise program perfectly? But yet, it, it, it spurs us on and it challenges us to live righteously. Now, there's two senses of, of righteousness or righteous in Scripture. One is passive and, and one is active. Now, now, when we talk about passive righteousness, what we're, what we're saying, it's, it's the righteousness that we receive by faith in Christ. So we didn't do anything to earn this righteousness, but rather it's a, it's a gift that God gives to us in faith. The other kind of righteousness that we talk about is an active righteousness. And it's active because it's something that we are motivated and, and spurred on and actually, actually do. It's active. It's something that we are striving for in life. And so there's two chasms that, that you and I need to be careful of when we're, we're talking about the law. The first chasm or the first ism that we're going to talk about is legalism, which says this. My standing before God is based upon my obedience. Like, the more I obey God, the better it is that he's going to approve and accept and love me. Now, now, if, God, now if I'm a really good person, I'm a really good Christian, I keep all his laws, he's obligated to love me more. All right, so that's the one ism that we want to avoid, is legalism. The other ism that we want to avoid as well is antinomianism. Anti meaning against and nomos meaning law, against law. In other words, that the, the person who says this is like, look, it doesn't, the law doesn't really matter because we are full of grace and full of love. And God's, God's, love does, God's law doesn't really matter. What really matters is that we just love somebody. You know, right and wrong, yeah, you know, that's kind of up to your opinion. But, but, but really what matters is that we just love people. So consider what Peter says here in First Peter Chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 16, he says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter begins, and he, and he says this, that, that we are God's children, and he has called us to, to holiness. So to keep the family name holy... We are to, to live a holy life. Now, you know, this, this makes sense, right? And let me kind of give you an example that, that has helped me think about this. Now, when I was a, a kid and a teenager, one of the things that my, my dad would tell me is, hey, hey, you know what, Andrew, when, when you mess up and you do something that's, that's really wrong or really disrespectful to me in public, not only is it, is it going, saying something about you, but it's also saying something about me as your, as your father. You are destroying the Hayes family name by the way that you're acting out in public. And so that's, kind of, that's very similar to what, what Peter is explaining here. So our, our family name as Christian is to be holy. And so when you and I begin to act out and don't act in a, in a holy lifestyle, we, we begin to kind of take away from God's glory and, and from God's, God's name. 
So how, how then are we supposed to keep the holy life? If that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be, to be holy, how is it that we, that we live the holy life? Well, well in part, it means to, to keep the moral law of God. Jesus himself would say this in John fourteen fifteen says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1421, just a few verses later, says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the point is that, that the believer is one who attempts to keep the commands of God. So when one is born again, one finds a newfound desire to obey the commands of God. Why? Jeremiah explains. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 says this, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So one of the gifts in regeneration is, that, is this newfound desire to keep the law of God. God has now written the law in our hearts so that you and I can actually keep it. Now what happened in the Old Testament is that the law was external. The law was outside of them, and they were to prescribe to this outside standard that they were to live. Now the problem with that is that there was no inner compulsion, no inner desire to to motivate Israel to obey the law. And and what God promised here in Jeremiah is like, look, there's going to come a a day, a point in time, where I'm going to write the law in their hearts so that they will actually live and, and obey the law. So, Jesus, in the passage of John that we looked at earlier, he, he connects our desire to, to keep the, the law with, with love. Now, the, the object of trying to obey God's law isn't to be a good rule keeper, not to be a, you know, a good boy and girl, but not, that's not really the point. But rather, it's our love motivating us to obey God's, God's law. Because duty fails as a motivation. Duty only works for so long. But after a while, it's sort of our, our, our motivation kind of wears off. Same thing with guilt. You know, like, yeah, I guess if it's come to that, I'll follow the law. Because I'm supposed to, and I don't want to feel, feel guilty. What, what Jesus is saying, look, look the, what I'm really after is, is your love. And if you really love me, you're going to, to want to keep what it is that, that I've told you to do. M- Michael Horton says this, Faith must generate the gratitude necessary for good works. But the law disturbs our believer's laziness by reminding him of his duty. So in other words, faith, it gives us the proper motivation to keep the law, but the law has a way of kind of disturbing us and of reminding us the way it is that God would have us live in response to the gospel. Not to earn the gospel, but in order to to live out how it is that that God has, has saved us. So, if you still have your Bibles in Psalm 119, I, I kind of want to remind you, the psalmist starts saying, Oh, how I love your law. So how can the psalmist say that? Well, the psalmist can say that because he, he loves the words of God, because he, he loves God. So if he loves God, he loves the words and the commands of God, and he really desires and he wants to keep them. Because the law reflects the giver of the law. And he's like, look, I, I, love, I love God, and because of that, I'm going to, I love his law. I love his instruction, and I really want to, to keep that. So how are, how are you going to respond uh, this morning? 
Well, the first way could be to turn to Jesus as your righteousness. You, you are not going to keep God's law perfectly like Jesus did. It, if anything, the more that I study the law, the more that it un- un- uncovers and exposes to me my need for a Savior. There's just no way I can keep the law of God. There's no way I could meet its high demands. I, I am so far, far short of that. And so I need Jesus to be my perfect righteousness. So maybe, maybe you this morning need to turn from all your efforts to be a good person and trust in the one who actually was, was good on your behalf, who, who fulfilled the law perfectly for you. So would you take away, you know, remove all your attempts at trying to justify yourself by, by your rule keeping or being a good person and turn to the one who, who really can justify you? Paul says this, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, would, would that be you this morning? Would, would you be... Go to the, the one who can cancel that, that record of debt that, that stands against you. Would that be, be you this morning? And the second way that we can respond to, to today's message is to, as believers, keep the commands of God. Out of our, our love for God and our desire to live a holy life that, that honors him, we ought to keep the commands of God. We need to go back to the cross again and again and again when we fail and receive the justification that, that only God can give. But yet, we need to be growing in our obedience to the law. The law awakens our conscience to where we need to be growing in our, in our walk with Christ. And maybe a good step, uh, a good place for you to start is to kind of go back to the Ten Commandments. You know, back in... Um, the catechi- maybe you were catechized, maybe you weren't, but a lot of the ancient catechisms, they would have a, an extended reflection on the Ten Commandments. So maybe that's where you need to start, is to go back and memorize the Ten Commandments, because that gives us a, a good perspective on what it means to, to love God and to love people. And if we're going to live holy lives, we need to be reminded of what that looks like. And as we continue to grow in our in our uh, holiness and, and in our righteousness and in our pursuit of that, may we then, like the psalmist, be able to say, oh, how I love your, your law because, because it shows me what pleases you. And my heart's desire is to please you, God. So this, this time I would ask you guys to bow your heads, close your eyes, and we're to go ahead and spend a few moments of silence and see how God would, would have us to respond to, to this word this morning. We know how, how far short of keeping the, the law's perfect standard that we are. Jesus, we thank you for, for living the life that we all should have lived, for, for obeying the law perfectly for us. Jesus, we do, we do ask that you would be our righteousness. And God, we do pray that, that as we continue to grow in our understanding of what it is that you would have us live uh, as your obedient children, that you would help us to live uh, an obedient life, a, a life that is devoted to keeping your, your commands. Lord, I thank you for giving us instructions, for, for giving us uh, things to, to w- awaken us, to wake, wake us up to, to areas that we need to grow. And, and God, I pray that even today that you would be challenging us to, to continue to grow uh, in, in our holy lives. In your name we pray. Amen.